Listener Production. A warning. This episode touches on topics involving violence against women and sexual assault. So please listen with care. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737732. And the number for Lifeline is 131114. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how forensic scientists are using wastewater to investigate the patterns of illicit drug use and manufacturing. Looking at a different location, what different type of illicit drugs are actually consumed, then you might target to that particular region. Dr. Marie Morilato is a forensic scientist who specialises in pattern recognition and investigations. Marie takes on projects and combs through data and casework to find common statistical traces between crimes. We look for the profile of impurities and that can tell you how the drug was made, intrinsic to the laboratory that make the drug. A case which stands out to Marie is that of the Yorkshire Ripper. We'll begin back in the 1970s and hear how police were stumped after a spate of violent murders in Manchester. There was like a lot of murders that were committed in a different location near the Manchester region. And during that investigation, they didn't realise that all these cases were linked to one another. And the reason behind it is was there was no systematic recording of the information in all the different cases. And also different people were going to the different cases. So they never noticed that the cases were linked. So if there was a more systematic way of using all the information that was collected on the different cases, then this person maybe would have been apprehended earlier and wouldn't have committed that many murders. What sort of evidence were they not putting together in this case? Well, there was different traces. So it was not the same trace that was collected in each of the cases but different type of trace. There was a skid mark uh, in one of the cases. So they analysed like 53,000 owners. So there was lots of resources that were put into place. Of the car or the tyre? The car, the tyre, yeah. So Peter Sutcliffe is is the name of the Yorkshire Reaper. He was one of the person interviewed, but nobody really realised he had an alibi and nobody really realised. So there was a skid mark and then there was like a car description as well. And then there was like a, a banknote in one of the cases, which was uh, one of the prostitutes had a banknote and it was really new and it was from a specific location. So they did actually look at this location where the banknote was emitted to see whether one of the people there could have been at the source. And Peter Statlific was again part of it. So there was not one type of traces, but more a lot of information that was not structured and not really centralised either. So nobody really noticed that these cases were part of the same series. By extracting the information from these traces, we are able to link different cases to one another. 
So really, forensic intelligence is derived from these traces that when extracted, analyzed and interpreted, it can provide knowledge to decision making in policing and in the broader security context. Provided it's recorded somewhere and accessible to someone else. Yeah, exactly. It sounds incredible because there were 13 women murdered and at least another seven attempted murdered. And that's a lot of women Mm -hmm. to be going missing in a relatively small population base. And to not link similarities, it's difficult for us to understand unless the police are acting so separately and that's often what it what is happening. Like uh, even nowadays, like uh, often different states and police organizations will work kind of separately from one another. And the information sharing is still nowadays very difficult. It is a bit strange, like in a way that that we didn't notice. But also, unfortunately, they were the red light district people from the red light district, and I think that's unfortunate. But often that the misrepresentation, like you know, they are not that represented in the community and things that is so they might have not been searched for the way other might have like you know a higher what profile yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. abduction or yeah. killing of a teenage girl who's at university exactly. is may get more media attention yeah. um when was it that the cases were finally linked so really the first kind of attempted murder was in 1969 that it was an assault and it was a prostitute and she didn't press charges. Was it Peter Sutcliffe who was yeah, identified? Yeah, it was him. It was oh my him. gosh. And in 1969, and then really when it started, 75 to 80, the 1980s, when he committed all his murders, the 13 murders and the seven like attempted. And in 1977, when they actually realized, ah, oh, I think it's one person committed all this crime. It's a long time they didn't realize this. all these cases were linked to one another. And then people were afraid and all these different things. So they put so much resources. I think like so many police force involved, like, and interviews, there was probably more than 50,000 interviews. And then in 1980s, there was a, a new person who came on board, was Stuart Kind. He came and he started what we call now geographical profiling, because we know that often, especially with that kind of crime, the person needs to live around the area where they commit the crime because they have to go back home after they commit the crime. Uh, so he actually put on a map all the location where the crime occurred and also what time occurred because, for instance, if it's further away, then the crime is more likely to occur in the morning because he needs to go and then come back at night time. And it's interesting because actually where, when they did that geographical profiling, the location where he actually used to live was in the middle and it was the center of gravity. So it was actually accurate to find out where that person lived. So it's actually really interesting. And that's what we call geographical profiling. And it's really used as well in forensic intelligence to try to find out hotspots or where are crimes more likely to occur so we can put more police patrol and things like this. And that would have been great like from the start, but it was 1980s, right? And then in 1981, that's when he was imprisoned. But he was like just, uh, it was a patrol encounter. He had false number plates and they just arrest him. And then looking at all the stuff, like uh, I think they probably look at back at all the cases and manage to link him. Looking back retrospectively, what do you think in a perfect world should have been done and probably would be done today? 
So I think the systematic recording of the information is one thing that wasn't really done at the time and that caused a lot of issues because nobody could see the links. The communication between the different organizations and between police was also something that was not really done. Information sharing, that is very difficult to do because, of course, there is different legislation and things like this and information sharing still nowadays is not the best, but it's still something that we need to improve on. And then I think also a systematic way of analyzing all this information and more like processes in place that are able to to analyze this information in a systematic way. And I think that's something that might still be missing because uh, we still don't know exactly how to do that. And with different type of information comes different ways of analyzing, but having models and really processes that are able step by step to analyze this information, to detect, record, extract, and analyze this information. I think that's the way forward. Is AI a big part of that? Yes and no, because with AI, it's the same as when you talk about the computer. Whatever you put in is whatever comes out as well. And with AI, it's the same thing. So they learn from like like things. But if the things that you put in is not good enough then they will learn things that are not <laughs> good enough either. So it is obviously helping machine learning and all these different things will help a lot, but it's not the only solution, I'd say. Do you need someone skilled then to actually extract the information that you're looking for? Yes, I know. But like, uh, I think if you have very generalized like a uh, process to do that, everyone could potentially do it. Uh, not everyone, but like uh, people with uh, forensic skills uh, like could potentially do that. I think whatever trace it is, finally the process would be very similar. It's just like the trace is different. But the process that you will put in place, what kind of uh, like characteristics you extract, etc., how you compare them, like this kind of stuff would be very similar. So I don't think you need someone with just deep learning skills and with no understanding of forensic science. That wouldn't work. I think you still need someone with a strong like a understanding of forensic science and maybe some skills in deep learning. But if you just put someone with deep learning skills or, or AI skills, I don't think it's going to work because they don't understand the entire process. So how does a police force, intelligence agency, forensic intelligence officers, how do they collate all that information? We don't know how they did it then, but how would they do that today? So we'd have like a, well, obviously database, which will be the one thing which they report everything. So every time they go on a case, then they have to bring it back and then enter all the information in the database. But I think what, and often we, we realize that forensic intelligence is not that easy to put into place in practice, because even though we have this database, there is a lot of different systems in police organization, and they might not talk to one another as well. It has to be quite simple in order for people to use it. So it needs to be structured in the sense that not just the trace that was collected, but also if there is any links with other cases, needs to be recorded as well in the database. Otherwise, people might not see them. And if there is a systematic way of doing that, so depending on the type of trace, so if I talk about the illicit drugs, we can extract a profile from this illicit drug. So for instance, if you have methamphetamine, ice, and then you extract the information from that profile, so from that uh, seizure, uh, you can actually record that information into a database. And based on that information, you can actually compare it to other profile from other seizures automatically using comparison metrics. 
Are you comparing the exact combination of chemicals that have been used, the percentages? Yes, so it's more relative intensity. So, like, so for instance, you've got a, um, a methamphetamine seizure and you take a specimen from it and you analyze it using different chemical analysis. But if I take, for instance, one of the, the most common one, then you've got a profile of impurities and that can tell you how the specimen was made, how the drug was made. So it's kind of like intrinsic to the laboratory that make the drug. In terms of how it was made, what do you mean by that? The chemistry, chemical yeah. combination, how, how do you then relate that to a laboratory? There is a lot of different ways of doing, it depends on the type of drug, but if you take methamphetamine, which is only synthetic drug, so it doesn't come from a plant in comparison to cocaine, for instance, um, there is going to be a laboratory and they will use a precursor, so a material that is not illegal, not always illegal, and they use that with other chemicals and they do a reaction between the two and that will form your specimen of methamphetamine. So the way the reaction is made and the way that they do the reaction will impact on the final product. These are the people making it. Yeah, the people making it. So, so then the final product will have different impurities depending on how they were made and which laboratory made them. Everyone almost like has their own fingerprint chemical exactly, composition. Exactly. And often if it's made by the same laboratory, they will have less variation. So we can look, if we have two different seizures coming from different location, we can actually link them to one another based on the impurity profile. If so if you have two different drug seizures mm -hmm. and you collect large amounts and you chemically analyse those, you can actually relate them like a family tree, to the common source. Yeah, exactly, yeah. What happens then, though, in the street? If if you've got a tablet, I understand you can do that, but powders and things that can be diluted, how do you then relate them back as they're being unsold uh, yeah, and diluted? Yeah, the distribution chain would like, yeah. So uh, there is a, a few different analytical techniques that are used, and, of course, the different ones will look at different things. Sometimes they will look at... The adulterants and the dilutants, so the adulterants, which are things that are added to the drug in order to make more money, really. Like, make it uh, go further. Yeah, exactly. So different techniques will analyze different things. So there is one technique that might analyze just that. Uh, one technique will look more at the impurity profile that I was mentioning before. So, of course, like uh, usually... Um, if you look at the laboratory that produced them, then you will look more at the impurity profiles or the RMS, the isotope ratio. We actually talked about isotopes in terms of locating a missing person yeah. who was found yeah. and the team looked at isotopes, then discovered that this gentleman may have actually spent a fair bit of time in Australia. Is that the similar sort of thing that you're looking at yeah. isotopes? Yeah, you can do that as well. So how, if they're all artificial non-natural chemicals, do you isolate what part of geography in the globe they come from? Yeah, I think it's uh, like a, with synthetic drugs, it's not as good as with uh, plant-based drugs like heroin or cocaine, for instance, because with cocaine, of course, we can find out the region where the plant was grown. Usually it's South America, but like uh, you can actually point it the, the region where it was grown based on the isotopic ratio. So it's another method that you can use as well. That's because the isotopes are very different in the soils yeah, in different yeah, parts of the world. Exactly, yeah. And the plant absorbs those isotopes. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's actually the isotopic ratio has like a lot of like different 
they can be used in a lot of different ways, as you mentioned with the case of the missing person. Is it almost like a genealogy search that you are going back to who distributed that, where did it come from in the first place? Because you're finding all these different locations. It is and it isn't. Like I think it's with the DNA profile, it might be a bit more accurate in the sense that there is like a, a markers and things that is with illicit drugs, especially with synthetic drugs. There is still some people might use the same method in order to uh, make their drugs. So it, it might sometimes be hard to actually point it to one laboratory unless this laboratory does something very specific in comparison to genealogy, like where you can actually, the profile is actually quite strong, right? And it's very different from one person to another, even though within the same family. How do you then deal with the backyard, the, the ones we imagine? I don't even know what the percentage is of backyards versus these commercially organised crime yeah, 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 yeah. laboratories. I, that's one type of information, right? One type of trace, which is the illicit drug seizure but you've got lots of other information that you can use. So if you actually use that systematically, that tells you, okay, here is a cluster of interest. Maybe in this cluster of interest, you've got lots of other information that you could use in order to find out who are the people involved, what are they doing, how they are organized, and etc. So telephone, communication, like, you know, a lot of police information that I don't have access to, but police would have access to. I know that the police for marijuana crops in houses and often look at hydroponic stores and sales, <laughs> yep. but also sudden spikes in electricity bills because obviously they're using a lot more electricity 24 yep. hours a day yep. than the houses surrounding them. Sure, that's and, true. And that's one way to investigate. That's yep. a very crude way, yep. but it's also a very big flag. There is that. And the wastewater could also be a potential avenue. I don't know if you heard of wastewater analysis. You might have heard of it like for in, during COVID because COVID, they were using that tool in order to see where are the COVID cases and when the COVID location and things like this. So they do very similar thing with illicit drugs where they analyze wastewater in different sewage treatment plant around Sydney or around Australia to understand drug consumption, especially for when you want to do uh, messages like health messages. Maybe one health message for everyone might not be sufficient, right? But looking at the different location where different type of illicit drugs are actually consumed, then you might target the health messages a bit better to that particular region. And I think going back, looking at wastewater, and if we look at, for example, the precursors that I commonly use to make drugs in the wastewater, we could potentially also point in location where there is high number of that particular chemical that is actually found in the sewage treatment plant. So that could indicate that there is some location that are actually making some illicit drugs. Would you have more waste, more water waste from where the laboratories are based or is it from consumers? It's usually from consumers, but you never know if things go down the drain, they will still end up in the sewage treatment plant. But we're usually looking for metabolites, so things that were metabolised in the body. What poor person has to go and test the sewage? (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know it's like... Does a, everyone put their hand up and say, not me? Initially, that was actually, we, we would put like a bags or something, like a entrance of the sewage treatment plant. So just like, so everything comes in. But now there's like a systematic way and like they have like, I don't actually know exactly how it works, but I'm sure it's not someone who goes there <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, do it manually. 
does that mean then that you could collect data on what suburbs are the highest users of what particular yeah. illicit drugs? Yeah. For example, in Sydney, is it a surprise what areas use more cocaine, for example? Well, not not really a surprise. Like sometimes we know like a kind of like that's we think that's what is happening and there might be more seizures of cocaine in the northern beaches or something and then and more like seizures of methamphetamine in Marlborough region. And then with the wastewater you actually confirm a little bit what we kind of know, but at least like this is confirmed. You know, you actually yeah, that's what we observe. So you can look at the demographic for various drugs yeah, and yeah. it does differ. Yeah, it does differ. Yeah. From suburb to yeah. suburb. And I think really looking back, not just for in a forensic science point of view, but for health, I think it's important to know that as well, because we can really trigger the messages in a better way if we know exactly what is consumed and what is the problem in that particular area, uh, then the health messages for the community are much better informed. In terms of collecting all of that information, what do you then do with it? So, for instance, if we talk about the illicit drugs and we've got lots of different sources of information that we can use to understand drug market, to have a better understanding. And illicit drug seizure is one of them. So usually the police are the custodian of that knowledge, if that that makes sense. They have all the seizure information. They ask the laboratory to analyse them and they have all that. So it's within the police. Then the wastewater, it's a separate entity. So that's actually the problem. How do you combine them all? in order to really do something that could be very beneficial. And I think there is no really one answer because it's all different source and all different type of information. So being able to combine them all is actually quite a challenge. At the moment, there is no one system that is able to combine them all. When we did it, we did three different catchments around Sydney, one in the north, one in the southeast and one in the southwest. And what we notice different pattern, like in terms of drug consumption. So in the north, more cocaine use. Uh, in the south, especially east, more methamphetamine. And what was interesting as well, we we look for the weekly pattern to see if there was this weekend effect. So for this different type of drugs, for instance, you can see an increase during the weekend because it's a party drug. And for cocaine, you can see that for MDMA, so the the ecstasy. Uh, you can see as well this weekend effect. So there is more consumption during the weekend. But with methamphetamine, it's actually constant. It's very high consumed the entire week. So it's actually quite interesting because that means that it's not just a... Recreational. Yeah, exactly. It's something that is actually used by people on a daily basis. In terms of um, distribution, that's actually a giveaway as to where police should be targeting certain areas if yeah. they're looking at clamping down on specific drugs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Instead of like having a one, one thing fit alls, like uh, I think it, it is different. And I think for especially, I, I know we think about forensic science like related to the law and things like this, but I think especially with forensic intelligence, it's more than just the law. It's also to understand patterns and try to disrupt and prevent criminal activity, but also prevent harm to the population. And I think with this kind of stuff, you actually might be able to prevent harm, further harm, because we know that people are going to consume drugs, like right, they're not going to stop consuming. So having just a law enforced drug policy is not going to be enough. So we need to find other ways to even prevent like the harm that is caused by the consumption of illicit drugs. And maybe wastewater is one type of like understand better where different drugs are consumed and what targeted messages we can actually do. 
you've got experience with robberies and looking for pattern evidences again. Can you talk about one case in particular? It's a case in Switzerland where there was two burglaries and there was a crime scene examiner who went into these burglaries. And the first thing that he noticed is an earmark on the door, because depending on the, the modus operandi, burglars might just act differently, right? And one way of knowing if there is any activities inside is to put the ear into the door to listen inside to see if there is any any noise. And what he noticed, there's the earmark and there's line like just above the earmark. And when he went to the second burglary, they noticed the same pattern, like the same earmark with this little line. And that was a little bit unexpected because they've never really seen that. They always see earmarks, but never with this line. But because there was these two cases, he was like, oh, okay, maybe they're actually linked to one another um, based on that really unique earmark with this line. And because he was like, oh, see if it is series, there might be other cases that we might have missed that were part of the same series. So retrospectively, he went back and he observed that it was three other cases that had the same earmark with this line. And it was hypothesized that the person was wearing a cap at the time. And that's why the line was, it was the cap. And so there was like now five burglaries that were kind of linked based on this earmark. And often what happened is with series, it is often difficult to get the first cases that are connected to one another. But once you notice that, then it's easy to go back retrospectively to see if you missed any cases. And that was the case here. And then based on all these different cases, you can consolidate your modus operandi. You can also consolidate the type of traces because maybe on one of the burglary, you might have found a biological trace that returned a DNA profile that you were not aware if you only take one case at a time. So if you only get one burglary at a time and you not, don't notice any link, then you wouldn't have m- managed to see that. Then because they were aware of that series, they told all the police in that region and they noticed more and more of these cases with this line. So there was like 18 cases. And then they noticed that actually maybe it's much broader because it's quite it was becoming quite big. Still no person of interest. But they told the region, like the other region in Switzerland. So in Switzerland, you've got states similar to Australia, but much smaller scale. Uh, you've got 26 states and they're very close to one another. So they told their the other states as well. So they that shared the information. They shared the information, ex- exactly. So in comparison to Yorkshire Reaper, which was not done, because they have um, a recurrent meeting that they do between police force every month, where they share information about shoe mark, about earmarks, about this type of crime, serial crime. And once they did that, I think there was at least like 30 cases that were linked. And in one of the cases, they managed to get a DNA profile from the cheek and that returned uh, a person and this person was actually linked to all the, the cases in one go. So it's a very good example to see as well, like uh, how the series is constructed and how people then will look for traces because they are aware of that series. So they will look for these traces. I think print so the door and, exactly. and above the door handle, exactly, exactly. but not necessarily the middle of it. Exactly, exactly. Where and how else is forensic intelligence being used? Yeah, so one other example that I'm maybe thinking of is uh, the use of that kind of like process in the area of false identity documents. We've got a colleague in Switzerland who is working in the police force, but also uh, at university. And he actually developed 
the, the, the entire process for false identity documents. Similar to the illicit drugs, when you can extract these different impurities on the illicit drugs, the chemical information, with the false identity documents, we can actually extract visual characteristics. So we know that forger will make the documents in a similar way, similar to illicit drugs. They will use a synthetic pathway to make the illicit drugs with false identity documents. They use specific printers, etc., and they will make the same mistakes in the love documents. So we can use these characteristics in order to link false identity documents to one another and potentially find out uh, the, the forger, like the person who actually making all these false documents. Uh, so now we've developed the systematic way of recording that information. So all the police force in Switzerland are able to access that platform and anytime they seize uh, false identity documents, they can record characteristics of these documents that could potentially lead to a connection with other documents. And in this platform, there's also links that were created. So if they observe links between the documents, it's actually recorded in that database, if you want, that is shared across police force. So any anytime there's a false document, they actually upload it in that database and they can see straight away if that document is actually linked to something else, another case that they previously didn't see. And now it's actually one step further they actually um, talk to Interpol and Europol and it's going to probably be hosted at Interpol and all the police around the world will be able to use uh, that system in order to observe kind of links between different documents and uh, potentially, based on that, you could potentially find out massive uh, criminal organizations that are behind these fraudulent documents. And they managed to actually find one of the cases where uh, the the actual forger was in Italy and this forger was involved in so many documents that were used to commit other crimes, like smuggling of people, etc. So it's actually quite useful. And it's this simple trace, right, which is this document. And you can extract this information to try to observe patterns and links between cases. And link back to a source. And link back to a source, yeah. Thank you so much, Marie, for joining us today and talking about forensic intelligence. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. Kelly. 